Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Simon Moore, speaks to one of the important figures who make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice. The following conversation was first broadcast in March 2021. Hi, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. Susie Park is a violinist hailed by the Washington Post as prodigiously talented and praised for her freedom and mastery. She's been a soloist with countless orchestras around the world, from the Vienna Symphony to Orchestra Wellington, working with some of the world's best conductors. She's also spread her wings widely in the chamber music genre, being a former violinist with the Eroica Trio and performing with many other chamber groups around the world too. She may be well-travelled, but she calls Sydney home, and she's my guest in the studio today. Susie Park, thank you for joining me in conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. Well, we should talk about the elephant in the room and get that out of the way first. So how's the uh, last year of COVID treated you? I am very privileged. I've been able to be here in Sydney and with my family um, and safe and sound. I you know, reside usually in the States, and uh, that's... That's been a place of, of um, some difficulty and challenge, as, as uh, probably most people are well aware. So it's been definitely a year of reflection, of a slower pace, of um, maybe spending more time with scales and uh, and my dogs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there's, there's not a piece you've been able to perfect that you always wanted to. Um, I wish I was that diligent or <laughs> focused on something You need a like deadline. I, I like deadlines. <laughs> I do. I'm a bit of a procrastinator. Uh, so you're about to appear with Selby and Friends in their upcoming concert. Is that the first uh, concert you'll have been doing or you've been doing a few? It will be my first set of concerts for sure. I did uh, play a little um, concert at, at Angel Place a couple of weeks ago or a while ago. Um, that was my first time back with an audience and uh, it was really, really nice to, to get my feet wet again. It, was it difficult at all to get back into the swing of things, of rehearsals? I was just so thrilled. I think I was sort of pumped up on adrenaline and, and just being around other people and playing music with them that I felt just incredibly um, energised and, and maybe almost a little too energised. <laughs> but um, I suddenly did feel exhausted after I was done rehearsing, which is not usual for me. I mean, uh, I do get tired, but not not to that extent. So I was like, it made me really think, wow, I have lost some conditioning and stamina in these in these months. Uh, something I've been hearing from other musicians that have just been getting back into the into the concerts and recitals, and something I think I've noticed as an audience member as well, is that um, people just seem so much more excited to be there. Is that what your impression has been? Absolutely. And that concert, as I say, I was incredibly excited, but the audience... They were just so thrilled. I think several people just spontaneously jumped up afterwards and they were shouting and screaming and it just felt like I could have, we could have played Twinkle Twinkle and we would have had the same reaction. I think that um, sort of deprivation of exposure to the performing arts and just live art being created that way is, is um, a human need um, and, and it just, you know, we need that kind of fulfilment in our souls and it's on a very primal level, I think. Yes, there was all these sort of suggestions that things might, move virtually with, with everything, not just, uh, you know, normal office work, but also even in, perhaps in concerts. But I, I just can't see that ever taking up. I mean, it's good to have an extra additional outlet, yeah. but 
Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I just think there's no real substitute for the for live music. Yeah. So Selby and Friends, I mean, it, it's it's very title. I mean, Catherine Selby basically gets her friends together, <laughs> as it were, uh, for uh, for a series of recitals. So um, how long have you known Cathy? Gosh, that's a really good question. It's it's I've known her since I was a little girl. Wow. And I, I didn't know her, um, I didn't play with her when I was a little girl, but um, I just sort of knew her as this, you know, fantastic pianist who was here in Sydney, and, and but I never really played with her. And uh, it wasn't until I went to the States and, and then she got in touch with me and, and we sort of started touring and doing these tours together. And it's always been such um, joy to collaborate with her and, and other um, musicians and cellists and um, explore these works and go on tour and, and get my chamber music um, chops up again every time. And mm. it's especially here in Australia for my family and friends and, and my home country. Mm. And uh, just if people are interested in those concerts, it's at the City Recital Hall next Tuesday the 9th and at Taramara uh, Uniting Church on Sunday the 14th. So uh, two opportunities there. Oh, and there's also concerts at the Southern Highlands as well. So um, I, I know our signal gets there. And if you're listening to the podcast as well, you might be able to, to catch one of those other concerts. Is the repertoire that uh, Kathy chooses for the concerts, do the friends get any say in it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like we are friends on, a, on an equal footing uh, and, and um, it, it's really a delight, the, the whole process from uh, planning it and, and collaborating on deciding what the repertoire will be is, is very um, democratic and, and we all have respect for each other and I think it's uh, really important way to get to have everybody say and, and mm. get buy-in so you know when we're on stage what the audience is receiving is actually something that we're committed to and care about and passionate about usually chamber groups are those full collaborations there's no leader per se there's no conductor musical director and so on kathy's name is in the title here but it still works like any other chamber group oh absolutely yeah i've i've always felt with kathy that um if i have any uh, comments or suggestions or ideas in our rehearsals she's open um, ears, open mind, open heart to everything. Um, it's a huge part of why I enjoy working with her so much. Well, I think we have to have some music now. And okay. the first choice that you've got for us today is a little bit of Brahms. Can you tell us about uh, why you've chosen this one and, and what it is? This is the Fourth Symphony of Brahms. And I chose this because it was maybe the first uh, orchestral work that I performed uh, and got to work on in a significant way. Unfortunately, I wasn't a part of um, the AYO or SBS Youth Orchestras growing up in Australia. And so I didn't really play in an orchestra until I went to school in the States and, and I was um, I was at Curtis. And so I got there my first year in August because uh, the American school system is, is different. And we went on this major fancy um, European tour in November. And it was just a real plunge into the deep end of, of figuring out how to play in an orchestra and we were led by Andre Previn and our soloist was Anne-Sophie Mutter and we played in uh, many fantastic and prestigious venues including Music Verein and it was in Music Verein that we played Brahms 4 and it just was such an extraordinary moment for me and such a moment of I don't know, almost transfiguration or something because to know that Brahms himself had been there and was such a part of the walls, you know, the, the wood of the walls and, and knowing that amazing musical figures like Mahler were in that space, it just, I can't even describe it, but I, I actually was sort of tearing up and, and it was a really powerful thing.
Just a part of Brahms's Fourth Symphony, performed there for us by the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra under Carlos Kleiber. And that was the choice of my guest in conversation today, the violinist Susie Park. Susie, taking you back to your formative years, you were launched, and I think launched is the right word for it, onto the world stage at the age of 16 at the UD Menuhin International Competition in France. That's uh, quite the thing for a 16-year-old there, I suggest. It was certainly uh, extraordinary and a very exciting um, moment and experience for me. I I hadn't done that many international competitions up to that point and uh, it was just wonderful, first of all, to be in France and it was also wonderful to be in the presence of so many fantastic young uh, players and to just sort of be amongst them and, and <laughs> essentially competing. Um, it was amazing just to spend time with Lord Menuhin and uh, be around his energy and and his philosophy of life and music and and um and to be able to play with the little national orchestra and have him conduct i I just couldn't believe it (laughs) to be totally honest i came out of playing after my preliminary round i think i actually said to my mother (laughs) who was accompanying me at the time i want to go back to sydney because i felt like i'd played really poorly Mm. uh and it turned out that my my accompanist at the time just sort of said you know, uh, after the competition, she said that you were ranked the highest in the first round. And I just thought, what? <laughs> and so the whole perception of how I judge my own playing, and I think it can be very skewed when you're spending so many hours by yourself in a practice room and you're just sort of not, mm. you know, necessarily listening to yourself in a way that is objective in quotation marks, whatever that means. Um, but yeah, I, I think I was very critical of myself. I, I probably still am working on that. But um, so you think it was because you were overcritical rather than you weren't able to hear that that was good. I think I over maybe emphasized or maybe paid too much attention to little things that weren't as good as they could be, hmm. um, and maybe just as good as you thought you'd prepared. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought, well, I played this bit quite well. Why could? Why did I have to suddenly? drop the ball for this second here, you know, that kind of thing, and sort of be tough on myself. Because, you know, when you're playing against all these top players, you just, you can't really um, be fallible in a way. Do you find that now still? Uh, I I certainly don't enjoy hearing myself play. (laughs) So, (laughs) and um, 
yeah, I, I, I don't go out of my way to, to listen to myself. I, I, I do it because I need to and I need to work on things and I need to, you know, when you hear yourself back versus mm. when you're playing in the moment. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. There's a difference between hearing a recording mm-hmm. and, and the hearing the, the, in the moment yes. uh, and judging that. Yes. Uh, that's, I suppose, what I'm talking about. And that's been really interesting because I've done some of these um, virtual recording things during this COVID period and I've, I've listened to myself and, um, you know, just really noticing the difference between how I think think I sound versus how I sound on a, mm. you know, through the metal ear um, is is very different. And I should probably be doing more of that is what I've been, what's been the takeaway. But you feel you should be doing more of that because you can learn from it or just yes. you try and get used to it? I think I can learn from it. But I think I've also, my ears developed since I was 16. And mm. in that, like, I, I do hear myself maybe not as critically or I don't focus on the same sort of things that I did as a 16 year old. Mm. Yeah. Your success at the Hudi Menuhin competition uh, when you were 16 was sort of just the beginning, really. You went on to, to win subsequent competitions as well. Um, I've got Indianapolis and uh, Poland down here as well. Was that a kind of a treadmill in its own way? I feel like it was certainly a really great way for um, building conditioning and stamina for playing at a high level mm-hmm. and to sort of be able to perform um, when I needed to and, and to just turn it on and, and pull it out, as as some people say. I didn't win the Indianapolis. I, I, was, a, oh, I, I was a finalist. No, I just don't want to be having any um, no. <laughs> errors going out there. <laughs> that, was a, that was definitely a, a, a fantastic competition and a great experience too. And the field that year, the pool of candidates was the level was extremely high and uh, I felt very honoured and, again, overwhelmed by the company I was I was in. So, But we can say win, we can say finalist. Uh, I mean, and it's good to, to make that correction. But at the same time, it's often the, the set of finalists that are remembered out of these competitions, not just the winner. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very interesting to note when you look at sort of archives and uh, of who are past winners and finalists of competitions. And mm. sometimes it's not always the first place winner who's gone on to have maybe the most uh, illustrious or whatever career. Um, sometimes it's a second place or whoever. But um, yeah, it is certainly interesting to know out of those finalists from that Indianapolis competition who is doing what. Um, you know, Frank Huang, who came fourth, is now the concert master of the New York Philharmonic. Um, Sergei Kachatrin came second. He's he's a he's a soloist, and but yeah, it's it's very very interesting. You said about the competitions being able to teach you how to pull it out and and make it happen on call, not be saying oh, I don't really feel like it today. So you see that as the main value of these competitions. I think it's a great tool by which to um, really prepare hard mm. and have built in a system of a disciplined system of preparing and and really being like um okay i'm going to get up and i'm going to go about my routine and then i'm going to do this amount of scales and this amount of working on sound production and then i'm going to uh, work on the bark for however many i'm going to focus on this aspect for, on it today and then i'm going to move on to paganini it just makes you really focus on improving all these different parts of your um, repertoire, your skill set, and and then when you have to um, come to perform, I think it's really useful to have some sort of system or a teacher who has very regular performance classes where you can perform for your peers and, and have that kind of experience because I find at least that I perform something better when it's when I've done it several times already. Mm. And that's why tours are really fun because it's not just a one and done thing. You have the opportunity to sort of explore the work further, explore the dynamics and the relationships you have with your um, chamber musicians or whoever you and um, really 
have fun with like, oh, we did it this way this time. And uh, then you build a level of trust because you know you can do it. And then you can sort of play around and be like, let's try this. And you can see how far you can sort of maybe push your colleagues. So how did traditional schooling work when you were playing with Hudy Menemon at the age of 16? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if it really did. I, I think I just... You weren't having to do two unit maths uh, exercises <laughs> between the rehearsal, were you? I did. I, I would take my homework um, over with me and I would do it on the trains and the planes and, and, and all of that. And it was certainly a bit of a struggle because I was not only competitive in the violin, but I also felt um, I, I liked doing academics and schoolwork and I felt like I was decent at it and um, I didn't want to get left behind and, you know, have to sort of do this massive struggle to catch up once I came back to Australia. And so it meant that I didn't always get a lot of sleep, but um, yeah, it was, it wasn't easy. I took French at the time and uh, it's why I have these weird gaps in my knowledge of French. Like I I know what the colors are, but I don't know what body parts are. I just just missed that bit of the curriculum. So, well, I'm sure you've managed to to deal with that as your life progressed. (laughs) Well, I think we need to have some more music now. Uh, we're going to go back to the Baroque. And uh, the uh, ensemble we're going to hear performing here is, uh, well, someone very close to you, I think. Yes, yeah, so this is a group. Uh, it's the, called the East Coast Chamber Orchestra, and it's a group that I co-founded oh, two decades ago. I don't know how it's been two decades, but uh, we were young and green and wide-eyed and uh, it's basically we were all friends and knew each other from schools and music festivals and we just decided to get together and, and play some string orchestra repertoire and without a conductor and just for fun. And uh, we enjoyed that experience so much initially that we decided, okay, let's try and maybe have a performance and see if people come and some people did come and then we got an agent or a manager and it just sort of became this very beautiful group and entity and for me this group is almost like uh, my family my musical family and uh, I think it's special because we all have in quotation marks day jobs and through you know all these years since we formed um, we have you know either gone different jobs or we've got children and we've got all this sort of different things that are pulling in our lives but this is something that we come back to every you know, several times a year. And um, it's a true um, passion project of love and joy. This piece was actually arranged by one of our very own uh, violinists, who is also a co-founder. And she's just an extremely talented, brilliant, creative musician and artist. Um, And uh, you'll hear in it that there's some claves, claves, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, and tambourine. And the tambourine is a point of humour for this group because... Some of our musicians, because it's not a, a different person, it's a, it's one of the string players who has to pick up the tambourine in the middle of the, of the piece and start whacking it. On uh, The next day after a concert or a rehearsal, um, they'll report having really big bruises on their hip oh. because they've just, you know, gone to town and really enjoyed that part. And you'll also hear some foot stomping at the end. So it's, a, it's just a really fun piece for us to play.
Gemignani's rendition of La Folia, performed by the East Coast Chamber Orchestra. And one of the members of the East Coast Chamber Orchestra is sitting in front of me right now because I'm in conversation with the violinist Susie Park. Susie, we were talking before about, uh, you know, doing having to do your schoolwork and so on whilst doing all the violin competitions. But were you sort of worried that you needed another option if music didn't work out? Despite uh, having success at all in competition. <laughs> you know, um, as much as I loved doing, like, all the other school stuff, I I think it was when I was six that I sort of decided for myself that I wanted to be a violinist. And uh, it never really wavered as my focal point. Uh, and I wanted to keep up with schoolwork because I wanted to have knowledge and education and be a well-rounded musician and not someone who was just sort of tunnel vision, only able to do one thing. But I knew that that was really what I was going to do and I was pretty sort of hell-bent on it. So you decided when you were six that this was going to be your career, but you'd already been playing for a few years by then. <laughs> yeah. So I what's your earliest memory? Well, I did start Suzuki and I uh, started taking lessons when I was three. I remember sitting in my teacher's studio on the floor um, with my legs out doing that game uh, which it involves a song called where there's all the tea in China or something there's a that, <laughs> that line I somehow remember it's not the Mississippi hot dog really. no it's not <laughs> that one <laughs> um, but th- I think that's probably my very first musical memory um, my parents tell me that I would sort of go over and sit next to the speaker and and just sort of stop what I was doing and uh, just sit there very quietly until the end of the record back in those days they were all records um, and then sort of demand to hear it again uh, I don't clearly remember that but apparently I really enjoyed dancing to Boy George's Come a Chameleon so. okay <laughs> <laughs> were you given because I was I did a Suzuki too um, as a, a wee small child and I remember Give, being given not a real violin at first, but a yeah. a box and a ruler to uh, to play with. Did you get that as well? I did. Yes. To, to get used to holding it and so on. Yeah, the, the position and the size of it. And I, <laughs> I remember that box actually very very clearly. And there are some several incriminating photos of that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your experiences of the Suzuki method uh, starting out and how that kind of evolved. Yeah, so I began with Suzuki when I was three and I did that for three years and I stopped when I was six um, and then I sort of moved over to traditional non-Suzuki violin playing. But I had very um, observant parents who sort of recognised that music theory was also an important part of being a musician and so my parents took me to a music theory teacher when I was five. Good grief. I know, I know. It's kind of ridiculous to think about. But um, they left me in that room with her. She said, oh, you know, she's she's too little. I don't take, you know, little little kids so young. And so they, but they said, you know, just, we'll just leave her here for an hour and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and they came back in an hour and, and she said, yeah, okay, we'll take her. So I was very lucky to be able to sort of figure out and learn about music theory at, mm. at the same time as Suzuki. So if you're deciding that you want to make violin your career when you're six, as it were, what I want to be when I grow up, I'm going to be a concert violinist. Uh, tell me about how that sort of then goes through your, your primary school and high school years. I loved puzzles. I loved maths. I loved English. I loved. I spent a lot of time reading books, but I spent definitely the most time on violin outside of school. 
and it just was something I love to do and I competed a lot. I did a ton of Steadfords. Uh, shout out to, you know, McDonald Performing Arts Challenge and Inner West Steadfords and all those. But I also took piano uh, when I was six and so I spent a lot of time doing music outside of school. I also did the Sydney Conservatorium um, Saturday program. Um, so there wasn't really a lot of free time. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, and it's that especially was true when I got into year seven and um, and just trying to figure out how to stay sort of focused on on academics as well because I went to school where I, I was given an academic scholarship so I needed to sort of make to maintain a certain standard there um, I, and like I said earlier I just I don't think I slept very much which um, oh well that's okay I, I think I turned out okay but <laughs> <laughs> I understand now that teenagers are supposed to get like nine ten hours of sleep but yeah that certainly wasn't the case. Were you feeling pressured? I knew that it was just something that I needed to do and it was because um, I think I had plans to sort of leave Australia and I knew once I started doing these international competitions and being exposed to these other uh, players and, and their level of playing that, um, you know, I, I had to really put in a lot of hard work and that was just the reality of, of how I understood, you know, if you want to be good at this thing, you've got to work really, really hard. Yeah, if that meant that I just didn't sleep as much, that was then so be it. I kept my eye on the prize of just sort of figuring out where do I want to go overseas after I, I you know, am done with high school here and um, who who do I want to work with, who do I want to play for, what school do I want to go to and all that kind of thing. Now, you were talking earlier about not liking hearing yourself play or at least getting used to it, but we're about to hear something which you are playing in, not just as part of a chamber orchestra, but, but just with a pianist. Can you tell me about uh, a bit of what we're about to hear? Sure, yeah. So this is actually a recording that um, came from a recital I did when I was in school uh, in Boston at the New England Conservatory. And uh, as part of my uh, program, I was meant to play a recital at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which is an absolutely fantastic, beautiful uh, museum in, in Boston. And um, anyway, this is uh, the Schumann uh, Sonata in A minor. Mm. And uh, I was really fortunate in the lead up to this recital to be able to uh, go to a music festival in Prussia Cove in Cornwall, England, which is uh, led by Stephen Isselis. And he's, to me such a Schumann specialist and foray specialist and uh, I was able to play this for him. <laughs> and then he did the thing of where he, you know, starts playing this violin sonata on his cello and sounds absolutely <laughs> just amazing on it. And, and, you know, I just think, okay, well, why am I even trying? <laughs> um, but you know, I, I learned so much about Schumann and phrasing and, and the um, style from studying with him. And so I, I wanted to share this. Thank you. 
The final movement of Schumann's Sonata in A minor. The pianist was Dina Weinstein, and the violinist was my guest in conversation today, the violinist Susie Park. Susie, we've already spoken about you not particularly liking hearing your own recordings, and I hope you managed to live through that one. But do you actually listen to the recordings of other people, especially when preparing perhaps for a new piece that you're going to play to try and get ideas? Or do you actually avoid that to try and approach it cleanly? I think it depends on what it is I'm preparing for. Uh, This is why I actually really enjoy um, working on pieces that are new, that haven't been played before, so there is no preconceptions or or biases of how it should be done because so-and-so did it that way but no for certainly when I'm performing a piece that has been around for a while I I do um I do score study and I I also do check out a couple of recordings and and see how they might differ and what people have to say about them in in their in their styles but yeah there are certainly artists that I I very much enjoy and respect uh, a lot um but uh, I, I certainly don't want to go towards mimicking or copying or anything like that. I can't help but notice that uh, almost all, not all, but almost all of the music you've chosen and also the music you'll be playing with Kathy Selby is sort of romantic or later. Is that your preferred era? Well, I guess by this list of choices, that, that's, what it would, that's what one might, one might think. Um, I certainly do love this music. Uh, It doesn't mean that I only love this music. I love many other um, periods and styles. Um, But there is something about Mahler and Brahms and Strauss and that sort of richness and the depth of the sound and the the harmonic um, textures and the progressions of how... It's just really yummy to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I do... Yeah, sometimes it feels almost indulgent um, that I enjoy it that much. Well, I think it's allowed. But, I mean, I know you started with Suzuki, and I know you didn't do it for that long before before going to sort of the, the, the broader, more traditional method. But nevertheless, most of Suzuki is that Baroque and early classical, isn't it? That's do right. Do you think there's a reason for that? That's a really interesting question. I haven't really thought about it that way. I Maybe because the lines are more, um, or the melodies are somewhat linear, or, or that they're harmonically not too complex, and mm. so... You're maybe just focusing on what your instrument is doing in the way. That's my sort of... Because they're not necessarily easy to play. Like, I mean, you wouldn't find a Mozart violin concerto necessarily easier than Tchaikovsky or something. That is correct. Yes, not at all. I think Mozart and Schubert are maybe the most hard. Schubert, for for sure, Mm. most difficult to play. Talking about being inspired by by other performers, um, the thing we're going to hear next is uh, Janine Janssen playing some Transfigured Night from Schoenberg. Is there something about Janine Janssen that, for instance, you like? I think she is a fireball. I like her playing so much. Uh, I haven't actually had the pleasure of hearing her live, but uh, all the videos, all the recordings I've heard of her have just been uh, overall just so stunning to me. I think there's something about her that is so free and in the moment and just all holds barred there is nothing I feel like she doesn't really just hold back Uh, and uh, there's this uh, recording of her doing the Britain Violin Concerto with the Berlin Philharmonic and I've watched that several times and it's just you know she's just going at it and she does not care about the fact that her hair has just completely come undone and that she's just (laughs) and yet she's playing these terrifically like horribly difficult octaves and just it's just just astonishing to me. She just blows me away. I have a lot of respect for her. Mm 
A bit of Schoenberg's Transfigured Night. The violinist we just heard, Janine Janssen. That was the choice of my guest in conversation today, the violinist Susie Park. Are there any conductors, Susie, that uh, you feel get more out of you than others in terms of your performances? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I've certainly had really incredible experiences working with certain conductors that really stick out in my mind. Um, and I'm not sure if it's just because it was me on that day or it was them on that day or, or what mm. it was, but... Uh, uh, when working with Simon Rattle, for example, I, I had the privilege of playing uh, Strauss's Metamorphosen with him and Christian Tetzlaff, and it was, I, I just, and he did it from memory, and we were all just sort of standing in a U-shape, and he just sort of walked around the U-shape and sort of really got close to you, and I remember the moment when he just was staring right at me, and it just mm. looked like his eyes were boring into my soul, and I, and it made <laughs> me feel... Yeah. <laughs> But in a way, I felt like that was so powerful because it made me think, wow, can I do more? Can I do even more than I'm trying to give now? And it just was super magnetic and, and electric. And um, But it wasn't intimidating? Um, Maybe there was a little fear, but I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> a, a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where you're just really challenged and pushed to the edge of wanting to do better. But in reality, you don't really have very long in rehearsal with these people, do you? No, that's right. You have very limited time. And so that's why, you know, their, their time management skills is just, you know, it's got to be really, really uh, refined and, and well planned out. They... When when a really great conductor just steps up on their on the podium and and just does their thing, it it's mm. just astonishing the effect that it can have on the entire. One day the same group of people can be working with one conductor, and the next day are different, and just the the change that, that can come about between the two days is just it's like it's a different group of people. Um, and it's not, and sometimes it's even before they say anything. It's before mm. they even. Uh, pick up the baton it's just who they are and their presence and I don't know what that is like how do you define that it's kind of sort of unquantifiable but uh, it's real with that limited amount of time that you get with a conductor and limited amount of time you'll be rehearsing with Selbian friends for instance how much if any pre-briefing is given not really any you just uh, expected to learn the piece know it and arrive yeah I think so I mean I think that's what you're being a professional is you just prepare your part as best as you can and whatever that involves if it means you know doing drills and doing certain chunks over and over if it means listen to 10 different different recordings if it's you know and you're a concert master you have to sort of if you don't know the piece and you have to listen to a wider range of recordings to figure out oh maybe they might take time here or I have to watch out for this here or you know who knows what myriad of things that might happen but um yeah I think you just have to be ready to be able to sort of do anything on the on that first day and um so when people say orchestral musicians, they only work so many hours a week. Well, yeah, maybe as an ensemble, but there's a hell of a lot of time that, that goes into it before you show up. All that preparation. Yeah. Knowing the piece. Yeah. So when you encounter a piece again, something something's in your repertoire, what's the process in getting that back up to speed? Is it uh, pretty long? Or, or are there some things that you've got so far drilled inside you <laughs> that you can just pick up after a gap and well, go that, for it? I think that's generally as a rule that's true, but I think it d depends on the piece as well. Like, for example, if I'm playing the John Adams, Scheherazade uh, concerto, and, and, you know, we did that um, with Lalia Sefovich, and I never knew that, I never had known that piece before, and it took a lot of time to prepare it, and uh, that was, a, you know, a few seasons ago, if we were to do it again, I think I would still have to put in a chunk of time to get myself um, prepared for that, but, you know, other things like Brahms 4, which I did on tour when I was, you know, a teenager, it's like probably much more of a quicker recall. 
Do you think it's got anything to do with having learned it as a as a child, absolutely, or as a teenager, should we say? Yeah, no, I I, I find that it's within myself. Yes, yeah, it's <laughs> indelible. It's like part of your DNA or your bones or something. Um, uh, and so, yeah, absolutely, that I find that to be true. So coming back to Selby Friends, uh, to finish off the conversation today, you know, you do a lot of orchestral work, but also you're also a fan of of chamber music. You've you've played a lot of that and been involved with lots and lots of groups. There must be a different performance style that you have to keep in mind. That's a really interesting question. I think I try to be authentic to who I am and what style I feel best represents a piece. And I certainly sort of come with my own perspective. I try to come with my own perspective for the first day of rehearsal. And then, um, as we talked about earlier, the process of collaborating and being democratic and, and having a give and take as to, you know, different opinions and, and sort of deciding as a group what is the most appropriate um, that, you know, I, I want to be as open-minded and, and receptive to new ideas as possible. I think that's what makes you a, um, a musician that has, you know, isn't limited and that you're able to grow and you're uh, involve and adapt and be able to do many different kinds of things. I, I never want to be put, you know, in a box or, or just sort of too focused in, in doing things one way. Well, that sounds great. Now, before I let you go, Susie, we're going to have to hear a little bit more music, which we'll, we'll go out with, uh, for a final selection that you've made, which is a little bit of Mahler. Why did you want us to hear this? This is actually, I think, if I really ask myself, maybe my favourite Mahler symphony. And uh, I, I went through this sort of Mahler phase as a, as a teenager and, and as a you know, as I was coming of age, I just felt like his music was so extraordinary and he just really had this amazing weight of... of orchestrating and encompassing um, sort of a universe or the entire world into a piece and all of that. And I just felt that was philosophically and artist artistically an incredible endeavor and, and ambition. And um, But this, this particular symphony I really love because of just the way he structures it. It's so unusual in that it's just the orchestra for the first three movements and then the last movement, this beautiful vocal part is introduced and it just sort of opens up your ears again to even more beauty of a different sort of sound world. Well, Susie, we look forward to hearing it. Thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Violinist Susie Park, who's performing with Selby and Friends. That's next Tuesday, the 9th at City Recital Hall Angel Plays and Sunday the 14th at the Taramari Uniting Church. There's also a Southern Highlands performance available too. Well, that's it for In Conversation for today. Remember to subscribe to the podcast edition of the program through your preferred podcast provider, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review. I'm Simon Moore. This is Fine Music Sydney. Here's that promised bit of Mahler's Fourth Symphony to take us out.
Thanks for listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Simon Moore and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation.